It was very important when this habit, I'm sorry, when this freedom and law dichotomy was set up, there every paradigm has a hidden or secret agenda. And what lies behind this freedom and law thing is uh, Christian ethics. It's very important in Christian ethics other than some fairly minor and screwball variants, to maintain the idea of human freedom. Because man cannot fall and be redeemed without the dimension of human freedom. And the dimension of human freedom is a precondition for guilt. Only the free can be guilty, because only the free are responsible for what they do. You know, after all, if the universe is a determinism, then you do what you do because you couldn't do anything else. And so to expect you to take responsibility for that is a little weird. So it was very important to establish the idea of human freedom. And all our political systems are built on various adumbrations of this concept of freedom. Habit and novelty is a little a shift slightly east on this issue. There's a lot less freedom in the habit and novelty equation, and there's a lot less responsibility. And responsibility, you know, Weipo Yang, the ninth century Chinese alchemist, said worry is preposterous. Worry is preposterous. And then the exegesis explains that in order to worry, you have to know what's going on. If you don't know what's going on, worry is an absurd. I mean, it's like someone who knows nothing about automobiles worrying that their car may break down. It, it's, it's immaterial. So, uh, freedom is a very touchy subject, and I offer this in an exploratory manner. There are very respectable orthodox positions which would tell you that the creation of the ideal of human freedom and the way in which it has been enshrined and defended in Western political institutions is the crowning achievement of the civilization. The problem is it has a curious relationship to uh, two other important power concentrations, the community and the ego. You know, where does freedom lie in that spectrum? When, when we say, if you are a Jeffersonian Democrat, a materialist, a paid-up member of the Democratic Party, and you say you are free, you know, do you mean you are free to do whatever you want to do? Or do you mean you are free to uh, participate in the general will of the community? This is not a closed issue. Over the centuries, the answer to that question has shifted. Uh, the 19th century, based on, in America, based on the exposure to frontier, frontier hardship and that sort of thing, was much more uh, about the freedom of the community to do what it wanted to do. In the 20th century, uh, consumerism 
and the disappearing of frontiers and the rise of populations and the packing of populations very tightly has tended, freedom has tended to mean uh, the right to gratify the whims of the ego. And this has led to a whole bunch of anti-communal attitudes and phenomena. Uh, class struggle, consumerism, uh, manufacture of useless and soon-to-be-obsolete objects, uh, people trapped in a rat race of uh, media-propagated needs and low salary and, you know, the, the rat race. So, uh, the thing from the very beginning that has always puzzled me when people talk about the future was there's a general agreement that it's going to be more collective that you know we talk in terms of the internet we talk in terms of boundary dissolution uh, a community and yet the great metaphor for collectivism is now in ruins you know Marxism I mean it's finished and so uh, there is no no uh, countervailing force to this freedom and law image at the moment. But I think that when community coalesces around the felt need to express community values, then the, the, the paradigm shift will be very close to happening. Now, when will that happen? Things will have to get a lot worse. Because you see, the paradox is that the people who can change the world people like you and me, the upper 5% of the literate elites of the industrial democracies, we're the furthest away from the bad news. You know, we're getting three squares and having a fine time. So somehow there has to be a sense of danger or impending chaos. And then we will, I hope, organize ourselves to get out of it. So are you saying the organism is reaching a point of transformation that uh, well, would be very painful for many and not so painful for few? Or painful for all? Well, I guess that leads to the subject of change. You know, change is in and of itself neither painful nor pleasurable. But, you know, the Bob Dylan song that says, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Well, a lot of people have nothing, and a few people have something. And uh, I think it wouldn't hurt for everybody to lighten their ballast a little bit, uh, to, to float higher. Uh, so these ideas have a lot of implications. A paradigm touches everything, and it begins very deeply. But I think uh, that my, you know, fractal mathematics, chaos theory, complexity theory, my own stuff with the time wave, all of this is going to, in a sense, erase much of the mystery about the future. That the future is in a freedom and law system necessarily unknowable. Because if you knew the future, then this idea of freedom would fall under a shadow but if you replace freedom with the idea of novelty and see then that no matter how unique a situation is 
it was somehow preceded, announced, anticipated by earlier uh, situations, then the anxiety that is built in to the freedom and law formulation disappears. Because you see, with the acceptance of this idea of freedom comes the acceptance of an unknown future. When, in fact, a great deal of the future can be triangulated and known, even with old-style mathematical and cognitive techniques. And when you toss in the new stuff, uh, then, then we indeed have headlights on our vehicles, and it does throw a high beam into the future. So, well, novelty replaces freedom in that freedom is this idea that anything you anything is possible and that you create it. And novelty is the idea that sometimes interesting things are possible and you are more like the gifted recipient. You know, it, it embeds you more. Freedom is an alienating, a fairly alienating concept. This is what ex modern existentialism understood. You know, that woman, can't remember her name, Margaret Green, who wrote that book, Dreadful Freedom talks about how, you know, once you embrace freedom, uh, uh, a great deal of, of uh, supportive structure fell away, which they, the existentialists embraced as a necessary confrontation with man's situation in the cosmos. But I think they were pessimistic. I don't, I, I, you know, Sartre's ultimate formulation of all this was he said, nature is mute. Well, nature is not mute. That's ridiculous. How could somebody get so tweaked around as to hold that position? I don't believe it. Nature is not mute. Nature is the available statement uh, for deconstruction on the nature of being. I mean, if you, but if you don't believe that, then you're an existentialist and you believe that uh, human freedom is the dom is the proper domain of becoming, but this has not led to very happy. I mean, I see that as a pro prologue to some kind of fascism. You know, Nietzscheans the Nietzschean super will is in there someplace. But I, I think native peoples. Aboriginals, if you could explain these two things, freedom and law, they're not going to get freedom and law. An Amazon tribe wouldn't have a clue. But if you talk about novelty and habit, this they understand. This is what life is to anybody who's paying attention. While freedom and law both are high-flown abstractions that come out of a very special philosophical agenda that by the time Hume and Locke and John Stuart Mill got to it, it was 2,000 years old. But most of the time, novelty as a word and, and habit as a word is a put-off. I mean, to think about those, you know, I think in our culture, for me, has always it's something that I've moved away from. You mean that novelty sounds trivia, trivial? Novel, novel, novelty has seemed superficial, and habit has seemed something that I can't. I have no control over. It's something that I do over and over and over and over and over. Again. Well, in the sense, yeah. So I have, it's interesting that you're using and law and freedom in my life. 
Well, everybody who ever had a physics, I mean, a civics class, law and freedom. Right, uh, so it's interesting to... Well, I should explain, I mean, because since you bring it up, it may be in other people's minds. The reason I use the word novelty is because I'm a great fan of Alfred North Whitehead, who was probably the last and greatest of, of the Platonists. And, uh, and he has a theory which is put forth in process and reality, which is his life's work, magnum opus, in which novelty is the word he wants to use because he says, you know, there is out of the background of, of what has been emerges the unique. And, and he, as I feel, felt that what we call nature is a habit, a, a novelty conserving engine. That what nature glories in is novelty. You know, the pattern on the butterfly's wing, the color of the polyp, the molecular species of the synapse, the chemical dynamics at the heart of a star, that what, that somehow nature is, originally I called the counterpoise of novelty, logically I think, entropy which is a familiar concept in physics, well understood mathematically. But Rupert convinced me that habit was a much more applicable idea. And uh, novelty is easy to understand but hard to define. It's like the word complexity, another word very easy to understand, very hard to define. I mean, whole conferences are held on what is complexity and people leave in fury, not speaking to each other. But intuitively, we grasp what this means. Sometimes for novelty, I've used the phrase density of connection. Because I think that, you know, like the arborization of the nervous system in the human brain or in the vascular system of a plant, that uh, as many points as can be made cotangential to each other defines the complexity of a system. But it's, it's basically and ultimately an intuitive and poetic concept, which is probably as it, to, as it should be.